Strongman Academy. Today we got a guest, Jason Ambo. Jason, this is my first podcast host that's going to be on the Strongman Academy podcast. His podcast, Living with Strength and Honor, is a great one. It is tools and information that is applicable to your everyday life. How do I accomplish exactly what I want to accomplish? How do I go about doing it? And I ran into Jason on social media, uh, on Facebook. You know, I was off Facebook for like seven years. And then when I really wanted to boost strong men up and make connections out there, uh, I got on Facebook for exactly what happened. Jason saw what I was doing with the kids. He reached out to me and he said, man, let me come talk to your kids about neuroplasticity. And I was like, ooh, neuroplasticity for middle schoolers. Let's <laughs> let's let's find something that's gonna work for 13-year-olds. And sure enough, he tweaked it and he came in and uh he did some work with them that was incredible, really helping them set goals and some micro targets to meet those goals. And uh it was an incredible experience. So Jason, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you, Andy. So uh yeah, Jason Ambo, I um uh, I'm an owner of two companies, uh A to Z Consultants, which specializes in tax credits, tax abatement, personal property taxes for small business. We don't actually do taxes. We just have that particular niche market that we operate in. And also the leader and founder of Living with Strength and Honor, which is an organization dedicated to helping people get what they want. I guess I'm uh, preaching the gospel where you can have it all if you want it. You just, uh, As Drew Brees said, you just might have to work for it. So um, that's what I do. I live with my, I guess I'll call her my fiance. We're getting married soon. We've been together for 15 years, crazy enough, right? And uh, Julie and I and our son, AJ, I have two other, excuse me, three other children. Uh, Kyle is a, uh, a special ops veteran and um, lives in Baton Rouge and he's 34. And then uh, Abby Ambo is my oldest daughter. She is an LSU cheerleader. She's undefeated as an LSU cheerleader in LSU hey, football, hey, by the way, brother. So we just, need, we need she, to, she needs to stay on board. I'm not. Hey, listen, I'm not saying, <laughs> you know, she's the reason, but I'm just doing the math. She's been a cheerleader. They hadn't lost a ball game. It's all I know. So you do the math. Um, and then my younger daughter, Anna's one year behind her. She's getting ready to go to LSU next year. So uh, I am a um, workout enthusiast. And um, uh, level two certified Krav Maga. Just started doing BJJ. Those are uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Those are kind of my athletic pursuits at the moment. And um, that's who I am. And that's what I've got a long history in retail and banking and some other things. But I've been a business owner now for seven years. And as I like to say, I think I'm unemployable now. I don't think I could work for anybody else again. <laughs> so God willing, everything will work out in this business world for me. Hey man, I, I can say the very same thing. If I wasn't doing exactly what I'm doing, I don't know. I don't know what I'd be worth. There you go. <laughs> so let's move in straight into this. What leadership roles are kind of specific to masculinity and being a man? Uh, how does a young man go about acquiring these skills? Uh, and as supportive men in that environment, what can we do to nurture it? It's a, it's a really great question, Andy. So here's the thing. And this is just my, my, my theory on it. When I was, I was born in 1964, and it was the very beginning of the women's movement in this country. And in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, you know, hence, women have really had this amazing revolution, right? They've become more powerful and they're 
their uh, in political leadership situations, in corporate leadership situations, um, you know, they are not the barefoot and 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 pregnant kind of women here in in the U.S. anymore. And I think that's fantastic and awesome and amazing. There's a ton of information on TV and in books and in in tapes, and there you know there's specific leaders that that have shown women. They can be all, they can be everything. They can be a mother. They can be an amazing wife. Yeah. They can still be uh, beautiful and sexy and still be taken seriously in the boardroom. Uh, all of those things. I think it's phenomenal. Meanwhile. Oh, the boy's been left behind. You look at all the educational <laughs> research. All of the educational research uh, points to much higher high school graduation rates. Higher GPAs, higher go. ACT scores, higher college graduation yep. rates, and and they're actually surpassing us on employment now. Man, in, in in a weird way, a lot of men we're still operating with the father knows best sort of perspective. This old nineteen fifties idea of what it is to be a man, and infuse that with a lot of single parent women raising young men that they're not getting the masculine side of, of, of that equation. They're not getting that input, right? So uh, you'll even see on television, and, and, and look, I, I, I'm not into the old poor, poor, poor men routine, okay? But, yeah. but even on TV, you'll see who's the butt of the joke on all the sitcoms now. It's dad. With it's pops, Homer Simpson. It's always pops. All right. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 look at all the Family Guy. You look at at, at any TV show. It, the, the dad is always the the goof, the idiot, the one. The mom's always like, "Yeah, it's dad. Don't worry about him over there." You know, it's amazing. I'm not saying it's a bad. Thing. I don't give a shit. It's just comedy. But we're sending signals to our young men, and 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 the feminine side of of that equation is great. We should we should be able to absolutely be in our feels as, as young kids like to say we should be able to be in touch with our emotions we should be able to express and feel those things we don't have to be the 1950s uh you know uh, uh, uh don't talk to me i go to work i come home i get served my dinner i sit on my chair and i go to sleep and i do it again every day that's not the model and we have to recognize that part of who we are as men includes some level of masculinity that has nothing to do by the way with sexuality Right. It's just that the, as men, there is a masculinity that we all possess, some more than others, which is fine. But to so at some level, we have to be giving those examples to people. We have to be embodying those things. For me, inside of Living with Strength and Honor, that is the entire idea of the foundational idea of, of living with strength and honor, not just for men, but it, it is often uh, some of my programs are men only focused. And that focus is on, listen, Part of your being, part of your purpose as a man is to have strength in every way. Not that false bravado bullshit, not that tough guy bullshit, but real, uh, real strength founded on the facts of telling the truth and stop fucking lying and having and enabling us to live honorably, to keep our pledge, to keep our commitment, to show up for our wife, to show up for our children, to show up to, to fill our bank accounts and, and 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 build a legacy. I don't know how else, I don't know what to add to that. I'm gonna finish that right there. How about that? No, it's it's, it's beautiful because you know you start to hear about toxic masculinity, and right. there is a level of toxic masculinity. Yep. Yeah, I think it's overblown by certain media outlets and certain political entities. 
but there is a level of this macho bravado that I carried most of my life that that's not really the way to be as a man. What you want to do as a, as a man is, is model the way you don't want to be this irate guy that yells and, and is crazy. You want to have a level of uh, what is what is Marcus Aurelius? What is he? What is uh, a stoic? You want to be a stoic. You want to be cool headed, calm, collective. And when it's time to go to war, go to war, baby. But there you go. In the meantime, be capable of going to war when necessary. Be capable. <laughs> you know, willing. I used to. I, I like to say that um, we want to. There's an old proverb: "It's better to be a warrior in a garden." Than a gardener in a war. <laughs> so you want to teach well, them. One can lose his life. The other guy just might lose a finger, maybe uh, yeah. with a, a pair of scissors or, in the garden. Or a right tomato, <laughs> or a tomato plant. Yeah, right? well, yeah. <laughs> so you know, with strong men, I try to teach them how to use their swords, but then how to sheathe their swords. There you go. There you go. Love it. So I'm a fitness guy. You're maybe what I'd call a reborn fitness guy, and that's kind of part of your story, and I want you to share it. But you understand the connection between physical fitness and socio-emotional fitness. Um, tell me about the science there and uh, how any man, young or old, plots a path to embark on that journey. Yeah. So I would tell you two things. First off, um, so I've always been into fitness. I've always, um, I mean, I started weight training when I was 14, 13, 14 or so. And I was, uh, I mean, I played ball like every other kid. Then I was, when I went to Baton Rouge Highs, so we have the, you and I have discussed both Baton Rouge High alumnists. Um, they didn't offer football and baseball and basketball. So I became a gymnast for a little bit because that's, well, something I could do and something I was interested yeah. in. And uh, I know you were a wrestler. It, uh, I got asked to be in a wrestling team a few times because it's the same sort of strength to body weight ratio that you got to get really good at, you know? Right. Uh, you have to be really strong and as thin as you could possibly be. Um, and then after that, you know, it's a varying degrees. But by the time I was about maybe 23 or so, I was training very regularly for a long time in my life. But it was, but you know, it it it, it looked like a, a seismograph during an earthquake. I would get really hot on it for a while, then I would fall off. And I'd get really hot on it for a while, and I'd fall off. But here was the problem. Some of the time I was working out, I had this story in my head about training. And that story was, I work out a lot. So it's okay that I don't eat the right foods. It's okay that I drink too much. It's okay that I occasionally binge smoke. It's okay that I don't get enough rest and recovery because I work out to stay in shape. I make up the difference. Well, I was making up the difference in my waist, but not in the not in the, not the way my organs were operating, not, not in the inflammation I was causing in my body and not the problems that I caused. And all of that eventually led, plus some hereditary issues, eventually led to me having uh, what's called a widow maker heart attack. It's uh, the kind of heart attack that kills 50 to 60% of the people that have them. I was in the gym on working two a days, getting ready for an event. And I had a heart attack. I had a 100% blockage in my major right artery and a 95% blockage in my major left artery. Jeez. And I somehow survived that event and survived it with zero heart damage. It was a little bit miraculous. The doctor still was like, uh, Julie asked him in the hospital, how, how did that happen? Is that because he works out a lot? Doctor said, I don't know. I can't tell you. So anyway, what to me, the, 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 what has, what has changed for me now is a lot of my training back then was all about looking good. 
It was just that simple. It was egotistical, wanted to look good, wanted to, you know, look good without a shirt on, wanted to be attractive. That was the major focus of my training. It's really shifted for me now. And because now my training serves two purposes. The first purpose it serves is for my health. Uh, and we had talked about it on, on, on the episode of my podcast that the ancillary benefit of working on your health and working on your strength and endurance and flexibility is you get to look good. And that's okay. I'm uh, Hey, look, I, I'm not beyond the idea that I don't want to look good. But, the, but my health is my focus more now. So the training that I choose, the events that I choose is more, more health-oriented. But the second thing is, if you don't have your body right, you can't do anything else. You can't be a father. You can't be a husband. You can't be an educator. You can't be a businessman. You can't be a man of God. You can't be anything if your body abandons you. Correct. Number one. Number two, the body is the most obvious place where you can see the results of your effort. It's hard to measure your spirituality and your deepening spiritual awareness and your enlightenment. Really hard to measure those things, even though you might pursue them your entire life. It's hard to quantify well, I've been meditating every day for 20 minutes every morning for two years. And now what? I've got a level three meditation <laughs> certificate. Yeah, yeah, I got the badge. I got yeah. the Cub Scout badge, uh, advanced meditator. It's hard, but in the body, it's really, really obvious. And the reason that's important is this. When we choose pursuits and we choose challenge, and my upcoming book's called The Challenge by Choice. And when we choose to challenge, especially physical challenges in our life, what we do is we make a commitment. And in making that commitment, we decide to a certain training regimen. And by doing so, we keep our word to ourselves and we prove that we are willing and capable to do so. And learning that lesson and knowing that about ourselves, we can apply those same principles to our spiritual pursuits, to our relationship with our wife, to how we raise our children, to how we run our businesses, to how we do our jobs, to how we educate, in your case, the children that you have. The lessons that you can learn from the physical, from the training, from having targets, from having goals, from having events to compete in, again, proves to us and reinforces the idea that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. Yeah, that's good stuff. Now, now, what about the science of just exercise and the serotonin release and the focus for your brain? Can you go into that for like a minute? Yes. Yeah, so you know how this feels, right? I mean, you know, that, that endorphin release that happens, they call it a runner's high a lot. That's one of, one of the things that occurs, which is just really, really uh, a tremendous. But, you know, whenever you exercise, you end up releasing a lot of different chemicals in your body. And that are so great and so good for you. Um, they relieve stress and some of the cortisol and the adrenaline and some of the real killer things that that can be that gets released in our bodies on a daily basis. Um, beyond that, there is the, the you know the, there is the changing of the mind, and we've spoken about this before. The idea of neuroplasticity that your brain can actually change. And I don't mean change your mind like put pepperonis on the pizza. Right. I'm talking about changing the way your brain is actually configured. The more you repeat, the more you're repetitive in the same actions over and over and over and over again, your brain wants to help you out. It's this beautiful design that the brain says, okay, human, I see what you consider a computer. Okay, human, I see, I see what you want to do here. 
Every day you want to do this over and over and over again. And then you, you want to feel that you're going to feel this certain way about it. It's going to release these certain chemicals in your body. So this is what I'm going to help you do. We're going to make a little connection, a shortcut, so to speak, in your brain and connect the little synapses, the little thinking spots in your brain to make it easier for you to repeat this thing that you clearly want to repeat over and over and over again. It's called neuroplasticity. Here's the thing is that we used to think years ago that by the time kids were about seven or eight years old, they were finished. That the way their brain yeah. was wired, that was it. They were done. Well, that's just who you're going to be. In other words, if you came up in a in a bad upbringing, too bad. Your life was screwed for the rest of your life. And what we've discovered is discovery really came through working with Alzheimer's patients and people with brain damage is that's not the case. That we actually can recreate those connections in our brain in the way that we choose. So that, again, when you repeat on a regular basis, repetitive nature over and over and over again, the same kind of activities, same kind of actions, same kind of reactions to certain triggers and certain ideas or in a training scenario where you're training over and over and over again. And no matter how you feel, you know, I think we talked about this before. It's, it, it's hot. It's cold. It's early. It's late. It's dark. It's light. It's whatever. Who gives a shit? You still go and do your training because you committed to you begin to connect those synapses in your brain. You begin to create those little short, those shortcuts and connections, and they reinforce the idea that you are capable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I used to think that by exercising really hard and just going at it, I was taking all these negative emotions and I was stuffing them. I was stuffing them. <laughs> I wasn't stuffing them. I was allowing my body to better process how I would react to them. Boom. Same emotions. That's right. Same stuff. And and I That's wasn't right. stuffing it. I was actually letting it come to the surface and work That's through right. it. But the way I handled it and the way I conducted myself was more in harmony with who I wanted to be and who others like to be around and see. So that's that's part of that feminization that we talked about, right? Is that you you shouldn't feel that way and you shouldn't get angry and you shouldn't get fired up. And my answer is bullshit. I'm a man and that shit happens. And I can wish it away all I want, but that ends up stuffing it. Then I got to, and I live, it just, it builds up, right? It builds up and it explodes like a, like a volcano on people that don't fucking deserve it. Like our wives or our children or our, you know, our, 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 our workmates, whatever the case is. Conversely, as you, as you said, exercise and getting after it is a great way to let that darkness come out, release that rage out of your body. Since you actually use those emotions, you use those manly traits that we have to your benefit rather than having them come out sideways. Yep. Beautiful. So your podcast, Living with Strength and Honor, uh, what attributes in regard to living a life of strength and honor can I bring to my students and to my own son and do these qualities kind of build on each other? How does that all manifest itself? So interestingly enough, one of the things I make sure that I do not do inside living with strength and honor is tell people how to live. I'm not interested in saying this is what you ought to do. This is how you should be. This is how you should feel. These are the attributes you should have. What I'm interested in doing, I and maybe this comes from the fact that, look, I think at the base of everyone, we're all divine beings, divinely created, perfect, and there's nothing fucking wrong with you. There's some actions and some habits and some patterns that maybe aren't serving you and, you know, that, that aren't great. 
Learn from your experiences in your environment, right? You're at the external forces. But at the base level, you're a divine creature, divinely created, just perfect in every way. So it's my theory that 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 what we can teach people and what we can embody them is, is the spirit. Is first off, a practical, tactical solution to better address all of those things and change the kind of human we are, change how we react, change the actions that we make, change our patterns, change our habits so that we end up being a new person. So we go from learn, live to lead, right? Where we learn an idea, we we read it, we someone introduces a teacher introduces it to us, or we read about it, or we see it on TV, or we you know we 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 meet someone that we go, wow, I want to be like that. I want to be like Mike. Yeah, right. So once we understand, well, what does that mean? What is it about Mike? What does Mike do? Does Mike have a daily routine? Does he meditate? Does he pray? Is he a spiritual person? Does it? You know, What's what is it about him and really understand all that? Second thing we can do, we, that's the learn phase. We can go to the live phase where we begin to act as Mike. I'm going to act like Mike. I'm going to do what Mike does. Mike has a modern routine. Mike shoots 100 free throws a day. Mike runs two miles. Mike does it. Mike does. Great. I'm going to mimic that. And for a little while, it's not really who you are and what you're about. You're acting like that other person, that other thing, that thing that you think you want to be. But what happens is, as we discussed before, you begin to set certain patterns. And as those patterns continue, they become habits. They shift from acting it out into this habit form where it becomes something we just begin to do almost automatically, right? That we've decided this is the way my life is going to run. I'm running it this way. And eventually, through repetition in time and through the changing of our chemistry and actual brain function, we no longer act as we are just being that new version of a man. Yeah. And it comes from the repetition. So that, you know, so like you, we were talking about meditation earlier. You don't wake up every day and go, oh, I'm supposed to meditate. That's just who you are. You meditate. You don't have to think. Ooh, I ought to train today. You're an athlete and you always, that's just part of who you are, right? You are being that. Yeah. So moving from, we can do this anything, learn, dissect it, understand it, and then begin to act as in the live phase. And you do that long enough and start changing your actions, which become a pattern, which moves into habits. Eventually you'll wake up one day and undiscernibly you wake up and go, hey. I'm a new version of me. That old version of me is dead. He's gone. It's a brand new guy that's here. It's a new version of Jason Ambo. Yeah, I, I love that concept. That's, it just popped in my head. You know, guys, for y'all that don't know, I just did Jason's podcast with him right before we started this one. <laughs> and he was asking me what it is about athletics that I just loved and embraced so much and why was it such a big part of my life. And it's that learn, live, lead. I'll go to wrestling in high school. They teach a move. And it's like, okay, okay, I, I get it. I understand why it works. And then we drill it. And that's still, the drilling is still part of the learn. It's the acting, yeah. yeah it's I, acting it out. I'm acting it out. But then in the, in the live phase, I'm at wrestling practice. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try to hit a double leg on this guy. There you go. And I do it at practice. And I do it at practice. And I do it at practice. And I'm and the first 20 it times it works like shit. Yeah. And you get crushed for it. Right, right. But you right. keep doing it. Yeah, and but you then, keep doing it. But then come the match, 
Then come the match, when this guy's elbows raised and he steps forward with his left foot, that's just what happens. A double leg is just what happens because I've right. trained it so much. And maybe that's that's the athletic Your muscle stuff. memory kicks in, right? You don't even have to think about it. It just happens because, whoop, like in jiu-jitsu. So you left that arm out, put arm bar. Yeah. Right? And you don't have to go, oh, wait a minute. What am I supposed to do here? Could you just be still for a second? Well, I oh, I'm supposed to arm bar you. All right, put your arm back where, you know, that's that's the learn part. That's the live part. You're trying to figure that shit out. Yeah. When you, once you get it and it's ingrained in the human that you are, that arm gets up and you go, oh, yeah. And before they know what happened, they arm bar and tapping out. That's where you know, ooh, I've changed. The jujitsu practitioner I am has gotten to the point. I don't have to think about that shit. That arm stays up and he gets arm barred. You can apply that to anything. You can apply that in the way that you are a husband. You can apply that to the way that you are a father. You can apply that to the way that you are a spiritual person or a man of God, whatever that is. You can apply the way that you're an educator, a businessman, a, 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 a gardener. I don't care what you choose. You can apply the same principles to where you go from, yes, I understand this concept. Okay, I can act in this way for a bit, and I've done it for so long now. It's just a part of who I am, and, and I'm a brand new man. Because this is now part of who I am versus it used to be something I wanted. Yeah. Awesome. So moving into the lightning round. Uh, first question. These are going to be short responses or they can be long. Right. I don't know, either way. Uh, number one, morning routine. Absolutely. My morning routine is get up. Freshen up. Usually try to get a one mile quick run or a stretch or something. I physiologically I want my body, I want my damn blood moving, and I'm old. I'm 55 in my 56 year life. I don't wake up like that. You know, oh shit, it takes me off. So I got to do something: a stretch, run, do some. I got to do something get my body moving. As soon as I'm done with that, I immediately meditate. As soon as I'm done with that, I journal, write down those thoughts that I have. Then I do a process called the stack, which is an application I use to take certain triggers, certain things, certain stuff that's on my brain and break those things down and get some insights about it. Then I do what I call daily deposits. So I send a text to Julie every day to tell her notes about love, appreciation, affection, uh, gratitude for her. I do the same thing for one of my kids. I got post-its for my son. You've seen my, you've seen the bathroom all over the damn mirror in there. And then my older kids, I text, uh, text them. Uh, then I spend some time in discovery. So I read, Study something that I'm studying at the time, some book, sales book, business book, personal development book, whatever. And then I share on social media after that. I share my insights from my routine. And that's my day. That takes generally an hour to two hours every morning. Some days it takes longer because I might do several of those stack things because I have a purpose behind that. So like yeah. I want to I want to send a gratitude stack to my mother or something, and I'll do one just for her and I'll share that with her and say, listen, here's the insights I had about you this morning. I just want to share that with you, right? But so yeah, morning routine is critical. You and look, you don't have to have it two hours. You can be 20 minutes or whatever you got to do. Start right. tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Uh second question. You a checklist guy, or are you just internally organized? Absolutely, write shit down, and that's probably a function of my age as well. Although I did find some years ago in, in my twenties, I spent more time getting organized than I did doing shit. Right, and for a while I abandoned lists altogether. <laughs> Fuck a list, I ain't writing nothing down. As I've gotten older, I just forget shit. So I use my phone to take notes, or I use my journals to take notes, and then you know, and what it also does for me is it relieves the pressure of having to go, oh, shit, what am I supposed to be doing? I can stay present in the moment because I know if it was important, I got it written down someplace. And I can go back to it. Oh, yeah, I got to take care of that thing. 
I don't have to walk around with this list in my brain all day long worried about it. Just the way my brain functions. There you go. Uh, number three, biggest key to making money. Action, 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 and action. That's the top three. <laughs> Shut the fuck up and move is the biggest key. You're never going to know all you need to know. It's never going to be the right time. You're never going to be the world's expert. It's never going to be easy. You're never going to not have objections. I could do this for about an hour and tell you all the things that's not going to be right. There's only one thing that can be right. Fucking move. Take action. And if you keep doing that and don't stop, you get there. You'll never know if you are right around the corner from the next big thing if you fucking stop. Yep. Number four, favorite movie? Braveheart. Braveheart. Okay. I was thinking Gladiator because it looks like honor. That is exactly where Living with Strength and Honor came from. The right. handshake, lit Strength and Honor. My uh, son and I do that every morning, Strength. And I got his little boys and all his little buddies in the neighborhood now that wait for the bus with us. Strength and Honor, Strength and Honor before they leave. Uh, Unleash Hell. There's so many great, uh, yeah. great, great, great lines in that movie. But Braveheart to me, you know, we all love the underdog story. So we all kind of see ourselves as underdogs. Yeah. It's amazing. Even, even people, you know, Joe Burrow just won the Heisman Trophy. He sees himself as an underdog. Yeah. Well, so, you, you, you transitioned into my last question here. Uh, what's your score prediction for the national championship game? 44-32 LSU Tigers. Ooh, good, closer than closer than some. They're going to score late on us and and, uh, and and maybe even have a drive that gets toward at the end. They're a pretty good football team. But yeah, no we're, doubt. We're just better. Awesome. Love it. Go Tigers. Great job. Appreciate it, Jason. Thank you, brother. And I'll see you all next week, guys. Strongman Academy podcast number 13. Today I've got a, a friend and a very special man in my life, Drew Rollins. Uh, he's serving in his 16th year as the chaplain at St. Albans, the Episcopalian Church on LSU's campus. And he really embodies what it means to be a strong man. He's a wonderful husband, father of five incredible children, an accomplished ultra swimmer, which he'll go into in a little bit. Uh, a scholar, a theologian, a priest, and a servant of God and the students of LSU. Drew, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for a couple minutes? Wow. Well, I'm I am flattered. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you talking about? Well, that's uh, I'm flattered to be here, and uh, yeah, I'm um, I'm the chaplain at St. Albans on the LSU campus, so I do uh, a lot of ministry with students and. Uh, um, I love doing that, doing that work, but I'm also a dad and a husband and uh, sometime athlete and all those things, yeah, and guitar player. So you didn't mention guitar. Yeah, but, um, uh, you you are guitar, an avid uh, bluegrass. Avis, avid bluegrass fan, yes, but uh, not so accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> it's, still, it's still fun, and I enjoy listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> So, one thing that really got me thinking about Drew, besides, you know, immediately for this, besides just his, his incredible influence in my life, is I was listening to a different podcast the other day, and there was a quote from a guy that was the state, the teacher of the year for the state of New York, and he ended up retiring from education because he felt like it was I mean, I'm, I hate to say this, an indoctrination factory. He felt we focused way too much on academics and telling kids to sit down and shut up and obey. 
and not enough on what really matters most in life. And his quote was, the two biggest things we should focus on in teaching children is how to live and how to die. And how to die, I'm like, how do you teach kids how to die? So the main reason I really wanted to interview Drew is to get to that how to die piece. Uh, He's had a few sermons that just blew me away specifically related to death and and how to do so gracefully um, and like a man. Uh, But the connection with this man that I have runs really deep in my life. Um, I mean, behind my father and my high school wrestling coach, Drew has without a doubt been the third most influential man of any man in my life. Uh, When I went back to the church right after I graduated college in 2004, he confirmed me. Um, when me and my wife started dating and and going to church and got serious, he confirmed her. We got married in St. Albans. He, um, baptized my son and he allows us to serve, uh, in the church, which is something I'm I'm very grateful for in life. So, I mean, like I said, I can't think of a, a stronger man and, and, and the right kind of strong man, you know, no type of toxic masculinity, None of that, how a man should be in, in pure form. So I'm, I'm so happy to have him here. So we're going to cut straight to the chase. Let's talk first about how we can take Christianity, its values, and how we can incorporate it into our lives as strong men, and then how we can teach these powerful principles in a secular public school setting without crossing any lines. <laughs> Well, that's such a powerful quote from uh, the teacher that you started with about um, teaching students to live and to die. And it makes me think that there was a there was a time when uh, in a in in culture where teaching was how to live and how to die. Um, And he's he's described it perfectly. The problem is that that teaching, the role of teaching, has become slowly uh, more and more specialized to the point where teachers are, um, I, I think many do not see their vocation in that those large terms. Um, it, it used to be that the role of teaching um, was uh, held by religious leaders, whether they be priests or rabbis or that role in the, it was uh, uh, the teaching role was held in large part by the church, and then that sep- or the or the synagogue, and that was separated out. Um, now it's very separate, but part of what has been lost in that is this uh, sense that we have a responsibility to teach uh, young men, in your case, how to live and how to die, to think in those in those terms. Um, there was a time in the church, and really until just the last generation, when it was uh, didn't was understood, didn't have to be explained that the role of the priest, one of, one of the major roles of the priest, was to teach people how to prepare for death, and that's what I'm getting at, and I think maybe what you're uh, alluding to in things that I've preached on before, that we have to be. We need help in learning how to prepare to die and how to approach death, how to approach our own deaths, how to approach the deaths of people who live, who are close to us. And 
part of what's happening in our culture now is that uh, the reality of death is uh, kept away from us, you know, because of the, the way that uh, the funeral home industry, you know, it's almost as if when someone dies, the body can just, I, I, often I will, I will get, a, get to the hospital as fast as I can once someone, there'll be a, a call that someone has, has died or is close to death. But by the time I'm there, it's like they have, they have escaped into the ether. The body is gone. The family doesn't know where the body went. Um, and the funeral home sort of takes over, not to denigrate their work, but they, they in this culture, they really do take, take over. Often the body is cremated. There may be no, ser no service. And so the family is really left to deal with death uh, without much help if they're not connected to some church, synagogue, even mosque, any, any religion to speak broadly, and any religious, uh, no pastor in their life that instructs them in that. It used to be, even probably two generations back, when you're, if you looked at your grandparents, you probably had a grand, uh, someone that died in their home, and the family knew what to do with a body. We don't know how to, we don't, we have to have a funeral home now. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Um, but there was all, there were layers of instruction for people and how to prepare for death and how to walk through it, through the grieving process um, and the, uh, the uh, leaving behind what, what you are to prepare to leave behind for those you love. Um, so all of these levels, um, I think we're woefully unprepared in it for, and I see it all the time when, when um, it's the exception that someone is prepared for death, uh, sadly. Yeah. So <clears throat> kind of touch on, you know, the morals and the values of Christianity. It, it's unfortunate if our children aren't going to church on their own, I feel like they're missing the boat on a lot of it. If they don't, if they don't have it coming from the home, mm -hmm. and they're not brought to church, there's so many great values in there. I mean, look at Proverbs. I mean, look at the wisdom mm -hmm. that comes from Proverbs. Right. Um, the stuff that comes from a lot of the Gospels and Revelations, and, and it's a lot of Paul stuff. I look at it and I'm like, this. These guys were really deep. I mean, they were super deep. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I meditate to try to get deep and then I get in this certain space in my head and then I read their stuff and I'm like, whoa, whoa, there's so much more than face value here. Mm -hmm. So how do we take a lot of those principles and teachings and, and how do we teach them, like I said, in a secular setting mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. public schools? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's tricky. <laughs> I have the freedom of, of not having to worry about that. I can really uh, speak very directly. Um, I guess that the thought I would have is approaching it, uh, and this is not the full story, but, but you can teach the Bible as literature. You can teach the Proverbs, the Psalms as poetry, um, standing alongside any great poetry or any great literature. And that's not the full picture of what we believe about the scriptures, but it is it's at least a place to, to start. Um, 
and to expose people. There was a time. There was a time when you you would not. Uh, well, to back up, you can't under you can't really read Shakespeare without understanding the Bible. You can't read much of uh, classical drama and poetry and literature unless you understand the Bible. Because when the Bible was when those books were written, when those plays were written. The Bible was such a part of the culture and such a part of the vocabulary and the, the, the thought, think the, the vocabulary, the thought process, the, the dictionary that these writers, great writers were drawing on. Right. Well, um, the, well the term in alliteration, hmm. I mean, that's, that's a, a cornerstone of classical literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and for those of you listening that don't know what an alliteration is, it is a, a reference to a biblical event or quote mm-hmm. um and i'm with you you know if you don't know the context t- context there you're lost one of my favorite books ever mm-hmm. is machiavelli the prince and it's constant he's got so many footnotes in it to roman history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i was in the middle of of a, a history graduate program when i read the prince and it was easy breezy just flowed perfectly i'm just like oh yeah they're talking about cesare borgia they're talking about marcus aurelius i'm like oh yeah 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 yeah. and i'm flowing you know and i tell a lot of people i'm like i'll read the prince it's 90 pages it's a quick easy read Mm -hmm. and they're like dude i'm lost Mm -hmm. because they don't know that reference point right right yeah yeah well i think they're we're thinking even in a public school setting there would be a lot of room to uh study portions of the Bible as literature. Um, you can get it, the, uh, um, you know, something as, as basic as the, the 23rd Psalm holds a place in our culture, not just in re- religious life. Um, so I would think there's room there. And you, you mentioned that um, the, the, the principles and the moral themes and part of that whole landscape of the Bible is the reality of death. You know, our, um, our our lives are like grass. We um, we uh, the reality of death is all over the both the Old and the New Testament, and that's part of what's missing in just the the, the view of um, uh, what it means to be alive today. The uh, the whole culture of the whole emphasis of the culture is on prolonging youth. Yeah. Uh, and against the reality of we age and die. Right. <laughs> it's just, you, you, know, you may, we do extend it. We are extending life, but you're going to die. Then, um, and that is a, that is the, also psychologically, that is the <laughs> most profound reality of existence is that you, we all face death. Um, but so much of our culture is in complete denial about that. Um, so just bring, gosh, just bringing up the subject of death is a huge step. And I would, I would think would be very unusual in a public school setting. Yeah. Or and, any setting really. And, and I feel like until we teach mortality, we, it's hard to teach the immortality of our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, the legacy we leave, right. the things that we do that, that have, 
that have been here forever and that mm-hmm. will exist forever. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I feel like there's so many things. I think the fear of dying is undoubtedly the number one fear that, that humans have. Mm-hmm. And, and until you suspend that fear or at least em- embrace the idea of it, you're not going to free up all these possibilities that you really can do your whole life. Right. You know, I think of like um, the Iliad and Achilles, you know, and the Oracle asked him, he says, you know, should I go fight in the Trojan War? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and she says, well, two, two sides to that coin. If you don't fight in the Trojan War, you'll live a long life and you'll have a lot of kids. <laughs> She's like, if you do fight, on the, on the other hand, though, if you do fight in the Trojan War, you're going to have a short life, but they'll be talking about you for all of time. Your legacy, mm-hmm. you know, will live forever. Right. So uh, it's just a dichotomy of that mortality versus immortality. And then I also kind of like wonder about the whole, like when you teach someone to die, I guess there's metaphors for it. Like the the Phoenix and the rebirth, you know, and I I feel like throughout life we have to kind of, our old selves have to die in order to become something better. Yes, that... I would say that is certainly true about life, that there's, there's a part of a life that is, is cyclical. You know, you die, parts of your life die, and then there's rebirth, and there's death again. There, there's truth, there's, there's a truth to that. However, the, the Judeo-Christian understanding of life is really, uh, it, uh, is linear. Okay. Meaning there is, there is a, a beginning, creation, yeah. and, there, and there will be an end. The last day. I mean, Jews and Christians are in full agreement about that. Um, there's a lot we don't agree about, but but we agree about on that. Um, that that linear shape of life is really in in c- conflict with a lot of the sort of general spirituality that's floating around today, which is that um, you know it's sort of the Lion King, the great circle of life, you know. Um, right. And uh, and that's not what uh, Christians or Jews believe. Okay. Um, that life is, and not, but there are part. There, it's true. There are there are death and rebirth is experienced in in many ways. But uh, it, our, our the biblical story is creation to the last day. Um, so we, that's, uh, I mean, that, that is talking in specifically Christian language or specifically Jewish language. Muslim, I would not, don't know as much about whether that would, they would agree. I think they'd probably agree as well. The major religions would agree about that, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. We'll, we'll move in subjects a little bit. Yeah. Um, so for my, those listeners out there that don't know, and I don't think you know this, Drew. For my curriculum, I have something I call a pyramid of maturity. Okay. First level is self-awareness, and it's got five elements. The second level is uh, the four tenets of discipline. It's got four elements. The third level is um, adding value to our lives physically, mentally, and socially. And then the fourth level is is really on 
how we can develop the ultimate positive relationship builder. As as people, as men, mm-hmm. how can we become the best relationship builder possible? And and the two boxes that, that can sometimes be opposing, but ultimately we can learn to work together are the idea of empathy mm-hmm. and then the idea of good judgment. Mm-hmm. So what does empathy mean mm-hmm. to you? What does good judgment mean to mm-hmm. you? And then how does a young man strive to be the best version of himself by really balancing mm-hmm. those two? Wow. Well, I think when I think of empathy, I think of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to reserve judgment until you have at least considered how they are, how some, how someone else is feeling. You know, so if you uh, empathy and uh, it, it's easier to empathize with someone when you've had the same experience, then. You know, then we say, I can really empathize with what you're going through because I have had, you know, that's, that's much easier. It's harder when someone is in a very, is experiencing something you have never, I mean, I, I cannot really empathize with a woman who's about to give birth. You know, I can sympathize with it, but I can't, I can't really put myself, but I can, I can try to put myself in her shoes and see what that person might be feeling. So yeah, I would say that's extremely, that, uh, that has everything to do with maturity, to be able to set aside your own ego and your own, that, uh, you know, we all want to be heard. We want to put our judgments out there to set that aside and consider what it's, what life is like for this other person who's, who's not me. Um, that kind of reserve is, yeah, very much a part of Maturity and what children really is, is, uh, is uh, developmentally impossible for them to do when they're little. You know, they don't. That's why. That's why you're one big, <laughs> one huge step for a teenager is when they figure out how important it is and how powerful it is to ask their mom or dad, "How was your day?" Wow. Yeah. That's inc- I mean, if for all you teenagers out there, <laughs> try it. Try asking your mom or dad, how was your day? And listening, actually, and actually listening to how their day was, and it will absolutely change your relationship. Because they do not, they do not expect that, and, and children never, almost never do that. They're just not developmentally there. Teenagers begin to get to a point where, oh, there's somebody else besides me. Yeah. Um, now, if you're not there as a husband or wife, then you're in trouble. <laughs> We need to be able to ask right. your husband or wife, how was your day? And listen, which is empathy, you know, connecting, yeah. with, connecting with what they have been through. Yeah, there's a quote. I kind of I, I stole the concepts from a few different people, so I'm not going to call it completely my quote. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I'm going to call it my quote. On the road to authenticity, we must realize that our vulnerabilities can become our currency. And, and I, f- I feel like uh-huh. you embrace that well because a lot of your sermons opens up with, so listen about this story from my life and my family. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you connect with people, I guess, by letting them know, like, hey, your problems are not your problems alone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope I do that. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's crucial. Yeah. 
And then you mentioned the second part was judgment. Good judgment, right? yeah. Good judgment. Um, I find that harder. Um, uh, I think that's... I mean, there's, there's, there's wisdom which you can receive from someone else. You know, that's why it's important to have mentors and to listen well to teachers, the right teachers in your life, your mentors. Yeah. Judgment, I think, am I right, is, would be more like in a particular situation that you find yourself in, what do you do? That's when you need judgment. Yeah. You, that's, that's applying the wisdom that you have to a particular situation. Yeah, because um, I, I feel like they're combating because a lot of times a kid's in a situation where he's, he's with his friend. Uh-huh. And his friend is, he's like, well, I don't, I don't know if I should do this maybe, but, but he's doing, I can't leave him alone. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, ultimately, I think a lot of times right. it's an excuse. Right. But I think as that, like you were saying earlier, as a teenager, their, their frontal cortex is still developing, mm-hmm. you know, to have good judgment. Mm-hmm. And and to have empathy, so they kind of meld those two together, and it's like how do, how do we as we're as we're coming through our formative years really learn to own both of those separately, but to balance them? Yeah, yeah. To exercise good judgment in situations when you're under pressure is very hard. I know for me, one of the things that's very important is to to not uh, recognize when I'm under such stress that I'm not gonna be able to make good decisions. And so to hold off making decisions. You know, you don't wanna, in, in AA they talk about not making decisions when you're you know, too tired, too hungry, or too something else. <laughs> Angry? Maybe. Angry maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there are times when you should avoid making decisions and that seems to be very wise to me. Um, that you're, there are times you're going to be better at exercising good judgment. Um, so I think that has to do with, um, you know, you mentioned meditation before, prayer, meditation, quiet, you know, being, coming so that you can access a place where you're calmer and you want to make your decisions out of that more quiet place. Yeah. But you know when you're in the when you're in the middle of it, when you're in an argument, when you're surrounded by all sorts of pressures, it's it's hard for anybody to do that. Not just teenagers. Yeah. It's just maybe a little. You get you you get some experience under your belt, and then you do realize, wow, you know this is not the moment for me to make a decision. Yeah. Well, this it's a struggle. Still, I'm 40 years old, and I still have this struggle between empathy and good judgment with Brandon. You know, he wants. To, he wants to go play with this kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, this kid's kind of bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I don't know. Mm-hmm. He's, he hits people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I want my son mm-hmm. hanging out with people that are hitting people. Mm-hmm. And then he starts hitting people and he's five years old. Right. But then the empathy kicks in and I'm like, I know where this kid's coming from, man. He's coming from a rough background. He needs friends and he needs good friends in his life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to exercise good judgment in the moment, which is hard. Yeah, I remember you, you reminded me of one of my something that one of my mentors told me years ago that was very helpful. He was, talk, he was talking about being a pastor and being under pressure as a priest. He said there are very few situations where a good answer 
where you cannot say, I need to pray about that some. You know, you're going to be, you're going to find yourself under all sorts of pressure. Um, and maybe as a teacher, you can't, can't say, I've got to pray about that. Maybe you can just say, I, I'm going to have to oh, think I, about I, that. I can. Yeah. I mean, but I the do. Pressure I don't is, know if I can, I do. <laughs> I think about that a lot because people, you know, often want an answer right now. And, uh, we find ourselves under that pressure all the time. And, and sometimes you have to give an answer right away. But most of the time, part of the, the wisdom would be, the wisdom is to say, um, I'm going to have to think about that or pray about that or take that to the Lord, you know. Um, yeah. So that we can, you can make a decision out of a place of calm. Right. Yeah, that, that, that brings me back to the, the promotion that actually took me out of the classroom from a teacher into an administrative role. Mm-hmm. My, my former principal offered it to me, boom, right in the moment. And she was like, so you, you going to do it? And I, was, <laughs> I said, you know what, Miss Lewis? It sounds like a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. I love you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll let you know in 24 hours. And she's like, what? I mean, I've got a decision to make. Hold on, Miss Lewis. Mm-hmm. I've got to go home and I've got to talk to my wife about this. Right. Because any decision career-wise is going to involve her. And I've got to pray about it. Yeah. I've got to make sure I'm ready for it. And that this is going to be you know, God's path for me. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're smart. Awesome. Smart. Well, I've got good leadership, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on to our lightning round. Right. Uh, five questions. Uh, you can answer them quick, and you don't have to answer them quick if you don't want. Okay. But uh, first one, greatest person to influence your life? Wow. <clears throat> uh, I would say uh, the writer Paul Zoll, a writer and friend. Uh, it's been a major, major influence on my life. He wrote a book called Grace in Practice, and which I would recommend to everyone. But to me, what it helped to do what was so important. It helped me to connect my Christian belief with the actual everyday living problems of being a parent, um, being in school, uh, being in the church, politics, any, you know, just to, to bring it down to how does grace actually get worked out in life? And to, and there's, I think people often experience this, uh, separation of their, sort of spiritual life or their church life with what they actually, you know, like what's going to happen around the dinner table. Right. Yeah. To bring those two together is not always easy. And that's, he's the writer that helped me to do that. Awesome. Um, number two, should religion have more of a place in public education? Hmm. I would say yes. Yeah. I would say yes. Uh, I think the, the yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's awesome. Good answer. All right, number three. Best thing about swimming? Uh, um, I would say so much of life is about endurance and enduring things. You know, just going, just having to kind of gut through things. There, there are many things that we can just escape from, get out of, you know, 
I need yeah. to move. I need a new. I need a new job. I need a new house. I need a new pair of shoes. I need a new wife. I need a new whatever. You know, where it's that's the the first impulse is always to escape and get something new. And swimming, any endurance sport, is you know behind it is this reality that you just have to keep going with the same thing. You know, yeah. it's about endure, enduring without uh, that giving in to that impulse to escape and so to me that's it it, work, it works for me because it's um at a deeper level just because that's so much of what life is about wow yeah so much deeper than the pool <laughs> yeah uh, there's a whole lot more going on than the pool yeah, yeah. and, and I, yeah. I always wondered do you ever kind of get in a meditative or prayer state while you're swimming uh i would say absolutely it's um another good you know, the great thing about swimming is no one can get me on the phone yeah, that's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. thing about that. Yeah. So even though I'm not, a, don't consider myself a particularly spiritual or prayerful, or prayerful or meditative person, when I dive in the pool, at least there's silence, more or less. Yeah. No one's interrupting me, so it's not prayer like I'm on my knees with the prayer book, but it is. It is prayer in that it's uh, uninterrupted time, largely uninterrupted time, with my self and God. And I do think about it that way. Yeah. yeah. That's, I think yeah. what kind of helped push me into meditation and, and be decent at it when I started doing it was just those, I say hours, hours throughout a week, you know, but an hour straight in the pool, just swimming, mm-hmm. nothing but me and the black line at the bottom of the pool Yeah, and my yeah. breath yeah, just repetitively. Mm-hmm. And it kind of took me to a place. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, number four, favorite podcast? Um, I really like the podcast uh, Same Old Song, which is a, um, it's a, uh, a, a Bible, it's kind of a Bible study podcast. Okay. Two guys talking about the, the readings for the Sunday, that Sunday in church. But they're hilarious, and they tease each other, and they have a lot of fun with it. So I would recommend same old song. Cool. Yeah. All right, last one. Question number five. Got to end on a high note. <laughs> Favorite non-biblical quote? I thought about, um, hmm, um, there's a um, quote by Edwin Friedman that says, don't just do something, stand there. You heard that? Yeah. Don't just do something. Stand there. And, the, and I love that idea. The idea being that it, there are many, many situations in life where the best thing to do is to not do anything. To be observant, thoughtful, but to not act. So many of our problems come out of acting too quickly. You know, it's just the kind of yeah. Look like you're busy, you know, and it's there's we put a real if you if you want to if you want to look important in life, you act busy. You know, just just being busy is makes you somehow smarter, better. Yeah. It's not the case. I uh I, I tell my kids all the time, respond rather than react. Yeah. Yeah. But I like same, that same idea, yeah. I like that quote. Yeah, same idea. Good job. Thanks, Drew. Okay, Appreciate man, thank it. Thank you. Thank you. See y'all next week, guys. Real pleasure.